you got a Bible, open to Ezekiel 37 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, there should be a card on the seat um, where you're seated whenever you walked in. It's got a little place to give us a little information about yourself so we can send you some information about us. On the back side of that, there's also a place for prayer requests. If there are things that we can be praying with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do so. You can fill that out and drop it in one of the boxes at the kiosk located in the back of the room or just down the hall there on your way out this morning. Um, Ezekiel 37 is where we're going to be this morning, and David read that text, a portion of the text that we're going to be in uh, earlier, but we're going to go ahead and read it again. It'll be on the screen for you uh, if you don't have a copy of it there in front of you. Um, Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1, the prophet writes these words, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are a 13 or 14-year-old young lady in the land of Palestine around uh, in the first century AD, and you're tending your business and going about the affairs of your life, and then an angel shows up before you. Gabriel just kind of sets down in front of you, and he begins to tell you that even though you are a young child who is now betrothed but not yet married, that you're going to conceive a child And that child's going to grow in your womb and you're going to give birth to the very Son of God. That's Mary's story. And in Luke chapter 1, we find Gabriel showing up and saying these words to her in verses 35 to 37. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, He will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. 
and is in the sixth month with her who was also called barren. And then in verse 37, the angel looks to Mary and he says these words, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, most of us in this room this morning who consider ourselves to be Christians, we believe this statement to be true generally, right? We don't believe there's any limitations to the scope of what God is able to do, nor do we believe there's any limitations to the strength with which God is able to act. We believe this to be true generally, but we struggle at times to believe it to be true specifically, We struggle to believe it to be true specifically, and that struggle to believe, that doubt about whether or not not, that nothing will be impossible with God, that struggle to believe that specifically often manifests itself in doubt in our lives. And that doubt, as it grows and gets watered, as we continue to, I don't know if you're like me, but you kind of chew on those doubts quite a bit, and you just wrestle with them. And as you wrestle with those doubts and chew on them, as you water that doubt, it ultimately can grow into despair and lead to a loss of hope. And lead to a loss of hope. Have you ever been in a, I don't know about you, I have. Some of you probably have been in what you would consider to be hopeless spots. Hopeless situations. When you look at them from the outside, they appear to be hopeless. Right? You, might be, you might look at a hopeless friend or family member for whom you have prayed for 20 years, and yet they still have yet to cross the line of faith. And it seems like at times the more you pray for them, the further from that line they move. You might be in the hopeless spot because, you've, because of all the loss you've experienced in your life and maybe some of the grief that you've tasted of lately and you wonder, will the pain ever really go away? Will that nagging sense of loss ever really leave? Or you might be in the hopeless spot of looking at a relationship that's been strained to the point that you believe it's beyond repair. There's just been too much said. There's been too much done. I don't think that there's, I can't see how this is ever going to be brought back together. You might be looking at a hopeless marriage. For some of us in the room, it might, have been a, it might be a very long time since you've actually felt like husband and wife, but now feel more like roommates who are just kind of doing chores together. And you wonder, can this, can, can this really turn around? Can it really change? You might be looking at a hopeless diagnosis or hopeless, what you consider to be hopeless children who set the course for their own lives and they've charted their own course and it doesn't include you or God. There's all kinds of hopeless scenarios and situations that you might be facing. And whenever doubt begins to creep in, it begins to manifest itself in despair, which leads to a loss of hope. And we find ourselves wondering, will things ever change? Will things ever get any better or any different than they are today? And that's exactly where the people of Ezekiel's day were. It's exactly where they were. It's exactly what they felt. See, the book of Ezekiel is written to a peop- the people of Israel who are currently in exile on account of their own sin and rebellion against God. God had delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt and he had brought them through uh, into the promised land that he, the promise he had made to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had settled them there and given them victory there. And just before they crossed into that land, though, God comes to the people through Moses and he says, if you will obey me, you will experience my blessing in this land that I have promised to you. But if you disobey me, then you will experience the curse of your rebellion and the curse of your sin. As a part of that, they would lose their land, they would lose houses, they would lose family, they would lose fields. 
And this is exactly where Israel is. Deuteronomy 28, 25 to 26 says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. In other words, you're going to go out as one army and you're going to turn tail and run in all kinds of different directions because they're going to overthrow you and overpower you and defeat you. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away. No one's going to come with a broom and chase them off. And then in verse 36, he said, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. These are all the curses that God said they would experience if they rebelled against him in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is exactly where Israel finds herself. She finds herself in a helpless, under the rule of a foreign king, and hopeless that things would ever get any better or be any different. And it is into this setting. Do you feel the weight of that? It is into this setting that God gives his prophet a vision and a voice to speak to his people in what is perhaps one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, for certain in the book of Ezekiel. Now listen, I've been thinking and chewing on this passage a lot in the last couple of weeks. And some of you heard me stand up here a couple of weeks ago and say, hey, I'm taking a four-week hiatus, and now I'm only two weeks in and I'm, I'm, I'm back. You just couldn't chase me away. Um, but but I, I want you to know that as I've chewed on this passage over the course of these last couple of weeks, I feel like God's given me something that needs to be said and needs to be said sooner than later. Sooner than later. And I think it builds perfectly off of and bridges perfectly out of the message that Stanley preached last week to us from Romans 12. And so this morning, what I want to do is dig into this text and I want us to see some things about our hope. Our hope is the people of God. That kind of builds on what Stanley said last week. I want us to see that it's absolutely necessary. I want us to see its source, where it comes from. I want want us to see how God delivers it to us, and I want us to see what it results in. All right? I don't don't have any commands for you this morning to go and do, but I have things that I want to call you to believe. That make sense? So first thing, the necessity of hope. One of the things you and I have to understand is that you and I, we cannot live without hope. We cannot live without hope. Stanley said last week that hope isn't wishful thinking, but it's joyful and expectant waiting. In other words, I'm not wishing that something's going to come to pass, but I'm waiting for it to happen. And you and I cannot live without hope. I want you to look in verse 11 of the text that we just read together, where God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones that you've just laid your eyes on are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. That word cut off in the text is covenant curse language. God made a covenant with his people. They rebelled and violated that covenant. And so they've been cut off. They've experienced the curses of that covenant. They've lost their land. They've lost their homes. They've lost their families. At this point in Israel's history, she's been in exile for at least 12 years. The city of Jerusalem has fallen to invading armies. The temple has been destroyed. And many men, women, and children have lost their lives. And I want you to notice the image that God uses to describe where his people are in that moment of their history. If you look in in the text, if you go back up into the text in that vision that God gives to Ezekiel, Right? It's, it's, it, 
Ezekiel's not in an actual place. He's not walking through an actual valley. It's like God drops a pair of virtual reality goggles on him, okay? And he, he brings him up in the spirit to be able to see this massive valley that is filled. And it's not filled with bodies. It's filled with bones. And yet even further than that, it's not just bones, but it's dry bones. In other words, bones that, that death hasn't just taken place, but so has decomposition. And those bones have been in the sun for so long that they've been bleached out and they are white and they have no moisture left in them. In other words, Israel is not just on the, the, the doorstep of death, but she, she is dead. She is dead. And this, this vision that God gives to Ezekiel Listen, hear this. This vision that God gives to Ezekiel is a visual representation of the spiritual and emotional condition of his people. In other words, it's, it's, it's where they are. It's how they feel. It's what they feel like they've experienced. So this valley of dry bones where there is no life is where Israel is at the time. And she had lost hope that things would ever get any better or things would ever be any different. And that loss of hope is like a death. It's like a death. Do you know that you can survive even the most difficult seasons and situations if you have hope? But when you lose it, there are all sorts of deaths that begin to take place in your life. Let me explain it to you, illustrate it to you a couple of ways. First, I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate occasion of sitting in the living room of someone whose, whose brother or son or daughter has taken their own life. But when you, sit, when you sit in the funeral home reception area or you sit in their living room and you listen to them weep and you listen to their, the, you watch the tears roll down their cheeks, inevitably somebody in that situation says these words, they just lost all hope that things would ever be any different. You, ha- you can't survive without it. In fact, in, in, in World War II, uh, World War II, Dr. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish prisoner in Nazi concentration camps. And during the time that he spent there, um, out of that experience, he wrote this book called The Man's, Man's Search for Meaning, in which he made several observations about the types of individuals who were in the camps. He said there was, there was just three. There was just three. In the, in, in the most deplorable situations that a, a human being could imagine themselves in, in the face of firing squads and gas chambers, in systematic wiping out of a people, he said there were three responses that people had. One was they, they got bad. <laughs> so they turned on their fellow countrymen. They, they, they became informants for the Nazis. And they became those individuals who kind of went around in circles and whispered things into people's ears. And they became very, very bad. He said the, others, the, 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 the second type of person in those concentration camps were those individuals who just gave up. He said some of them actually just curled up into a ball and laid on the ground and just died. But he said the third, the third was that some became heroic in those scenarios. And so he stepped back from those observations. He said, what's the difference between those who got bad, those who gave up, and those who became heroic? And he said the difference was those who became heroic had hope, whereas those who got bad and gave up, they had lost it. It had been robbed from them. He said some of the folks had their hope in possessions and so all of their earthly goods were stripped from them and they lost all hope and so they curled up in a ball and gave up. Some had their hope in status and because their status had been stripped away from them through the beatings that they experienced and the, the cruel conditions that they lived in, they lost all hope and they got bad because they thought, hey, I can get status back if I just kind of become an informant. 
But he said those who became heroic, they had a hope that neither death nor suffering could rob from them. It was something beyond this life. Something bigger than anything they ever could taste or experience in this world. See, Frankel found that if suffering and death could take your hope away, you got bad or you gave up, but if your hope could stand up to death itself, then you became heroic. See, you and I can live without lots of things, but we cannot live, we cannot live without hope. And this loss, and a loss of hope leads to the death in all sorts of our lives. Let me give you a couple of illustra- uh, examples here that are going to really press this into your life a little bit. All right? See, the loss of hope leads to a death of sorts in your soul at times. See, some of us have surrendered completely to temptations because we believe we'll never have the grace or the power to resist them. And there's been a death in our souls so that we continually give ourselves over and over and over and over again to all the sin and temptation that is thrown at us because we believe, we've lost hope that we're actually going to be able to resist it. Or it's a death of sorts in our prayer life. Like we, don't, we can't imagine things getting any better so we no longer get on our knees and ask God to make them so. Or we have a loss or a death of sorts in our, in our mission. We shy away from sharing the gospel with people because we go, man, really? I've been, I've been praying for them and I've been sharing with them for 15 years and nothing's, nothing's changing. So we lose hope and we begin to pull back from those conversations as opposed to press into them in marriages. There's a death of sorts whenever you lose hope that your spouse or yourself will ever change and that death is called divorce. It's the reason so many marriages end in a divorce is because people lose hope that things will ever get any different in the home. You can't live without hope. I could go on, but I can't. So, it's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. The second thing this text teaches us, if it's absolutely necessary and you can't live without it, then where do you find it? And what the text teaches us is this, is that hope is found in the God who gives life to the dead. That's where hope is found. That's where joyful, certain expectation comes from, from this God who is able to give life from the dead. In verses 12 to 14, God finishes up with the virtual reality tour of the valley, and now he applies all this to the people, and he makes them a promise. I want to read it to you. He says to Ezekiel, Therefore prophesy and say to the people, not to the bones anymore, but to these people who have withered up and died. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Here's what God promised to do for them. He promises to take this dead nation and bring them to life, and he promises to take this displaced nation and bring them back home. In essence, what God is promising to do, because a part of the curse that they received for their rebellion was the fact that they lost land and they lost life. And what God promises to do is to reverse both of those things. That a dead nation would live again. That a dead people would live again. And that a displaced people would be brought back home. And God would fulfill that promise in Israel's history as he gathered Israel back together and brought them back into the land under Ezra and Nehemiah whenever they returned. See, God promises to give life where there was death and where they were displaced to bring them back home. And what we see here is that God promises to reverse the curse. He he makes a promise to them that he he would overturn the judgment, that he would reverse the curse. 
Now, their, their hope wasn't found in the fact that they were going to be really good and God was going to then one day receive them back. Their hope was found in that God was going to be really good and show himself to be so. That he would bring them to life. And listen, God says he would reverse the curse. And while none of us in this room ever spent any time in exile in Babylon, do you know that you were born into exile? You were, I was born that way. I was born into exile, cut off from God and without hope. See, there was a bigger curse that all of us experienced that we've been exiled from Eden. And what God does with Israel here in history, he does in the scope of all humanity across the pages of history for all of us, is he makes a promise to reverse the curse. You see, you and I, we were born Christless, we were born promiseless, we were born hopeless, and we were born godless. We were born in exile. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time before Jesus, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. He said, that was your status, right? That was your Facebook, what are you doing, right? That, that, that was just plastered across there. Here I am, I'm Christless, I'm hopeless, I'm promiseless, and I'm godless, and I have nothing in this world. That was your status bar. Paul goes on further to say that we were born, when we were born naturally, we were still born spiritually, that we were dead. There was no light or life in our souls, we didn't, we didn't have to dig deep inside and find that little spark of, of, of God somewhere within all of us. But then whenever we were born, we were born dead. And in Ephesians 2, again, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That there, there, there was no lighter life in our souls and we came out of the womb spiritually stillborn. Dead, Christless, hopeless, godless, promiseless, dead as a valley of dry bones. But not only does Paul say that, he also says that what God does with Israel, he does with all of us as he promises to reverse the curse, the judgment that we have on account of sin. But God doesn't reverse it by just winking at our sin, right? He doesn't reverse Israel's curse by just winking at her sin, and just kind of pat, like, like a grandfather, right? Patting the kid on the head, right? Rubbing their hair a little bit, patting them on the booty whenever they kind of walk by. Now go play. That's not how God reverses the curse. That's not how he overturns the judgment. What God does is he takes those who have been cut off and he cuts someone off for them in their place. And his name is Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, we, we, when Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says that Jesus, the suffering servant, was cut off from the land of the living. He died. He died. That's the judgment that we deserve and that Jesus took that, that he was cut off. We should have been cut off. Jesus was cut off in our place. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that what God does in Christ is he redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So all the curses that we should have experienced on account of our rebellion and sin fell on Jesus at the cross as he hung there on the tree. God reverses the curse by becoming a curse for us. And he brings us back in by cutting off his son in our place. We who were dead, we who were Christless, we who were hopeless, we who were promiseless. 
That's what God does. And then he takes us, and listen, don't miss this. He takes us, and he makes us alive. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Man, that what God does with Israel, he does across all the, the entire scope of human history with all kinds of people. He reverses the curse. He brings life from death. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. This is what we glory in. This is what we preach. And this is what we look in the mirror and remind ourselves of all the time. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I was apart. I was cut off. Now I'm brought in. I was homeless. Now I'm adopted. God is able to take even the deadest, driest person and people and bring them to life. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this. And and listen, let me just go ahead and say, this isn't going to make a mass-produced Christian t-shirt. Okay? (laughs) It's just not. It's not going to be on a coffee mug somewhere that they're, they're going to sell out of at Lifeway. Um, it's not going to be on one of those little chalkboard signs with, you know, the arrows and the little dots and all that stuff that you're going to hang in your dining room. It's, it's not going to be on any of that stuff, but it's true and it's in the text. And here's what it is. That just because he can does not always mean that he will. Listen, we are not a name and claim at church. You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, is that we don't go, if you just have enough faith and you just believe strong enough and you whip yourself up with enough emotion, God is going to always do exactly what you're asking him to do. So you name it and claim it and God's gonna do it, right? That's not who we are, that's not what we believe. We must constantly hold this tension that God can. I'm gonna have the faith to believe that God can, but I'm also gonna have the trust to press into him even when he doesn't even when he doesn't. Listen, I've known godly people who believed that God could and still didn't get the results that they wanted. Godly people with great faith who still lost the battle with their disease. They didn't experience healing on this side of heaven. There are people of great faith who have prayed for years and never see someone move toward Christ. There are individuals whose marriages do come to an end, whose kids never come back. Even though they trusted that God could, They had to come to terms with the fact that he may not always. And Ezekiel tells us in the text here, when God, in verse 3, when God looks at Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? These bones, these dry, lifeless, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord God, some of your translations say, oh sovereign God, the one who is in control of all things, you know. And it's not a flippant, God, you know. It's a reverent, God, only, God, I don't doubt your ability. I believe that you can, God, but I, only you know if you will. Only you know if you will. Only you know if you will bring that friend at school that I've been praying for faithfully for the last calendar year, that they would come to faith. Only you know, God. 
God, only you know if my marriage will actually turn the corner and begin to flourish where it is just withered. God, only you know if my child will pick up the phone tonight and call me when I haven't spoken to them in six months. God, only you know. Only you know. I met with a, 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 a not a buddy, he's a, a, a new friend uh, this last week, he's a pastor of a church up in Saxe, who came into a very, what was a dying church. And God used him in his great capacity to revitalize it. And he came in and they, they grew down. <laughs> uh, they grew down to like, you know, from a church of 160 when he got there to a church of about 100. But over the course of time and through perseverance, God brought them back and now they're a flourishing church of 500 that's having an impact in Saxe. But as we sat across the table from each other, he looked at me in the eye and he said, you know what? When I got there, I had buddies who were going to other churches in very similar instances and in very similar situations. And they didn't do, I didn't do anything different than what they did whenever they went into their churches. And for whatever reason, God chose to revitalize and give life here, but there's didn't turn. And it reminded me of this text in Ezekiel. Oh, oh, sovereign God, only you know. Only you know. So just because he can does not always mean that he will. But when he does, when he does, and we're getting close to landing the plane here, when he does, I want to give you the two means by which he does it. When he does, he does it through his word It's the first means that he uses. He does it through his word. Listen, I find it rather amazing that God says to Ezekiel, listen, go out into this valley and just open your mouth and begin to preach to all these dry, dead, lifeless bones. Just preach. Look at what he says in verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I, and I will lay sinews, I will bring you back to life. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound and a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and there was sinews and flesh upon them, skin had covered them. When God commands Ezekiel to preach, and when, God, and when Ezekiel actually speaks the words that God commands him, there's a great rattling. I can almost imagine it being like a convention of deer hunters with all their antlers trying to learn how to make those whatever they do, Right? <laughs> They're just rattling as all the bones begin to come back together. And then there's, mus- there's ligaments that, that wrap around legs and muscles that stretch across torsos and organs that materialize in their cavities and spaces. And they're standing there before Ezekiel and God gives, God gives Ezekiel this picture. And I'm not gonna lie, it must have been a pretty freaky sight to see this happen in this vision that God gives to Ezekiel. But he does it by his word. God says, preach. Ezekiel preaches. And what happens is all these bones, they come back to life. Because God's word is alive and God's word gives life. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. It's alive. And in 1 Peter 1.23, it says that we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is alive and it gives life. It divides us, it convicts, it confronts, it converts, and it comforts. It does all those things in our lives because it's living and it gives life. The word of God does. The word of God convicts and it converts. 
Listen, I read a, heard a story this week about, uh, from the biography of George Whitfield. He's a great British preacher back in the day. He's a very fruitful minister as he traveled different places and preaching revivals and seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And, 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 but there was, a, there was a, club, a, a group of men in that day called the Hellfire Club, right? They were kind of like the individuals who would mock all these great preachers, right? Because they, they were just casting down hellfire on everybody. And so they would, they would mock all these preachers. And the leader of the Hellfire Club was called, his name was Thorpe. And so Thorpe was a great impressionist. And they used to make fun of Whitfield because he was a little bit cross-eyed. And so they called him Dr. Squintums, right? Because he was always kind of looked like this. And so he said, there was a story that's told about Thorpe and all of his buddies one day getting their hands on one of Whitfield's manuscripts of one of his sermons. So they go down to the local pub and they're all just kind of hanging out, having a good time. And Thorpe stands up. He'd memorized Whitfield's manuscript. And he begins to kind of work through the manuscript with all of the right facial features and voice inflections that Whitfield would have given himself as he impersonates him. And he gets to the point of the sermon where Whitfield begins to talk about Jesus coming to live in our place and to die in our place and to be raised from the grave so that he could rescue rebels. And he got to that point in the message and Thorpe's voice started to shake. And he just a great silence fell over him and he went and sat down. And on the spot, God converted him. As this great God that he had mocked fell on him through the proclamation of his word. God's word is powerful to convict of sin and to convert and bring us to life from the dead. He went on to become a preacher and an evangelist himself. Little irony. But it's also powerful to comfort those who are hurting. I had the privilege of ministering with a lady and my previous, uh, the, the church that I previously served at, I ministered her, with her for about seven years. And she had gone through a very difficult season of life whenever her kids were in grade school because her husband, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary, had brain cancer. And he died a very slow and painful death. And she cared for him all of his days, including those very final ones. And in her darkest moments, now left as a widow with two grade school-aged children, God led her to Psalm 27, verse 13, which she began to cling to She began to cling to because that psalm says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, not just one day when I get to heaven, I'll see the goodness of the Lord, but I'll see it and taste it here on earth. And so through many dark and difficult days, she labored to raise children who now both love and serve Jesus as a single mom, a widow, And as she's getting ready to launch her children out into the world, God brings a faithful man who loved Jesus into her life, who had lost his wife as well. And I had the privilege of standing before both of them and officiating their wedding a couple of years ago and reading this text and saying to both of them, you are now tasting the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God uses his word to give comfort to those who are in very difficult and dark places. And he can do it with you. No matter where your marriage is, no matter where your kids are, no matter where this church is, He's able to comfort and he's able to convert through the power of his word. 
But not only through, does he do it by his word, but he also does it by his spirit. He also does it by his spirit. It's, still worth, it's worth noting that although we go from dry bones to bodies in verses 4 to 8, they are still corpses until 9 and 10. They're still corpses until God says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath and command it to come from the four corners and to fill them. And when it fills them, they stand on their feet as an exceedingly great army. Now the word breath in the Old Testament is the same word for the word spirit. It's the exact same word. It's used all over the place. And so what God is saying to Ezekiel is saying, saying prophesy, preach, call the spirit of God to come upon these individuals and bring them to life. And that's exactly what takes place. So you can try and form yourself all day long by obedience to the word, but until the spirit of God shows up and quickens your heart and awakens you, you can be a dead man walking. I kind of envision like the walking dead, right? Except without eating the brains and like dragging the feet and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Or shotguns. (laughs) Right, but that's kind of what I envision until God says, live. And they lived. Listen, there are some of us who have had all the pieces in all the right places, but nothing changed until God said live. And you know that to be true. Maybe you grew up in church, and maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you heard the gospel 19 times from friends that shared it with you over and over and over again. And there was not one of those instances in which it was more articulate or more eloquent or a presentation that was more impactful or insightful but you heard the gospel over and over and over and over again and then one day all that wood that God was stacking in your heart the spirit lit a spark and it came to life because he does it by his spirit he brings us to life Some of you have heard the same counsel from multiple sets of friends over the course of your life about what you should do and the path that you should take and the direction you should go. And yet you did not, I'm preaching to myself a little bit, you did not listen to that counsel from the first friend or from the second friend or from the third friend or from the fourth friend or from the fifth friend. But all of a sudden, the twelfth friend comes through the door and they share the very same words with you and it reorients your life in a different trajectory and direction. Why? They shared the same truth with you because the Spirit came and convicted. The Spirit gives life. And the Word and the Spirit, they don't work apart from each other. They work together. They work together. So when He does it, this is how He does it. And when He does it, here's what it'll do. Here's what it'll do. We'll close with this. Hope. Hope has the power, has the power to produce perseverance in your life. It has the power to produce perseverance in your life. It has the power to produce perseverance with people, and it has the power to produce perseverance in places. I don't know if, if you've ever read the, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's, the, one of the installments in the Chronicles of Narnia, you saw the movie. Right? I, love the, the, I love the way that Lewis captures this idea. Because he, he, when the children first stumble through the wardrobe and they find themselves amongst all the prickly pine trees and the, the snow all over everything and they begin to interact with some of the residents of Narnia and this is what they say to them. They say, here in the land of Narnia, it is always winter, but it is never Christmas. 
always winter and never, in other words, it's always bitterly cold and there is no joy. There is no joy. And the white witch is ruling and reigning and everything is frozen. The streams are frozen solid. The fields are covered with ice. Everything is bitterly cold and there is no joy. And then the children begin to hear rumblings that the great King Aslan, who in Lewis's mind represented Jesus, that Aslan had come, shown back up in Narnia. And when he shows back up in Narnia, they, they, they meet with the beavers and the little, little beaver dam and the little hut. And the beavers tell them about Aslan. They begin to tell the stories of Aslan. They begin to think about Aslan and dream of Aslan. So they set out on a journey to find him. And as they move toward finding Aslan and looking for Aslan, what happens? All the streams begin to thaw. I hadn't even seen him yet. All the streams begin to thaw. The fields, the ice begins to melt and the flowers begin to bloom. The birds begin to sing once again. Why? Why? Because they had hope. They had hope. And listen, I want to tell you this morning that hope can thaw the coldest heart. Can thaw the coldest heart. When God shows up and says, live by his word and, or, or through his spirit and by his word, can thaw the coldest heart. And it can help you persevere through some of the most difficult and dark seasons of your life. Because when you, when, you, when you look in the mirror at yourself and you go, you know what? I was once hopeless. I was once hopeless. I know who I used to be. In fact, I still kind of drag that dude around with me every once in a while. Most days. I know what it was like to be hopeless. I know what it was like to have a cold, ice covered heart. And if God can thaw my heart, then it gives you a perseverance with people thinking that if he can thaw mine, he can thaw theirs. But it also gives you a perseverance in difficult places. In difficult places. Listen, I'm going to share with you very transparently where I am right now. Planting a church is hard. <laughs> it's difficult. It is painful. But one of the things that keeps me getting up in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other is because I know that a well-watered hope, it has the ability to, to thaw even the coldest place at times. It has the power to break even the most, most dry, most dry and hard ground. It does. And listen, there's folks over the last 12 months who've kind of lost hope that this, this place could be, ever be any different than what it is. I get it. I do. I, I don't have any anger towards them. I don't have any bitterness towards them. There have been wounds that have been opened up in me that I'm, I'm processing through and, and working through and trying to find God's grace to heal. But what keeps me getting up in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other is I still hope in a God who overcomes all odds to lead a people from slavery and bondage and captivity through a watery tunnel when doom seemed certain. <laughs> With their backs against the wall at the sea, they have no idea what's going to happen, and God opens the sea. 
I still hope in a God who in Judges 7 whittles down the army of Israel from 32,000 men to 300 with trumpets, trumpets, and then says, go and defeat the Midianites. I still hope in a God who in 1 Samuel 17 uses a young shepherd boy armed with a sling and a stone to take out the most feared opposing soldier in Israel's history. I still hope in a God who in Acts 9 takes the heart the heart of the church's most vicious opponent and turns it to himself. And Saul becomes Paul, the apostle who would preach and plant churches all across the world. I still hope in a God who took 12 men, one of whom stabbed him in the back and betrayed him and rewrote the course of human history. I still believe God is able to do all of those things. And one of the reasons I know that is because I look in the mirror and I look at myself. And I say, I was a hopeless cause. And God said, live. And my heart came to life. I still believe those things. So I don't have anything for you to do this morning, but I have something for you to believe. Will you believe with me that with God, all things will be possible? Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I'm grateful for the, just the vividness of your word and the image that you give us of dead places and dead people coming to life. That you bring hope into the most hopeless situations. And God, some of us in this room this morning are in very hopeless scenarios in our lives. As we wonder if the pain will ever go away. As we wonder if the disease will ever be healed. As we wonder if the marriage will ever be renewed and restored. As we wonder if our kids will ever return. As we wonder about what you will do here in the life of this church. God, would you give us the grace to believe that, <laughs> that you, the Holy Spirit is able to come and overshadow a young girl and give birth to the very Son of God, the second person of the, of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Would you give us the grace to believe and the faith to believe that, that you are able to do all these things, God, but in the midst of that faith of believing great things that you might do, God, would we also trust you even should you choose not to? Because you, sovereign Lord, only, only you know. God, give us the grace to believe and the grace to trust that you're able to take dead people and places and bring them to life as your word goes forth and as your spirit lights a fire. And may that hope give us perseverance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.